Hello, I am Bob Bostock. You are listening to Discover DEP, the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection's official podcast. Each week, we will provide you with timely information about how DEP protects and preserves New Jersey's air, water, land, and natural and historic resources. Please feel free to add this podcast to your iTunes or RSS feed. You can also follow DEP on the web at nj.gov DEP. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Bob Bostock, and welcome to another edition of Discover DEP. You can download Discover DEP and subscribe to future editions through iTunes and Google Play. October is a popular month for bats. In fact, October 24th to 31st is Bat Week. However, these mammals have more to offer than just being a symbol for Halloween. Today we are joined by Mackenzie Hall. Mackenzie is a biologist in DEP's Division of Fish and Wildlife's Endangered and Non-Gaze Species Program. Mackenzie has done extensive work with bats during her time at DEP. Last year, she was the recipient of the Conserve Wildlife Foundation of New Jersey's Women and Wildlife Inspiration Award, which reflects the work that she has done on bats and working with other creatures to protect them here in New Jersey. Mackenzie, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about your experience with bats. Thank you, Bob. Mackenzie, tell us about bats in New Jersey. Bats in New Jersey, that's a pretty broad question. We do have nine different species of bats that live in our state, which I think is surprising to a lot of people who might just see a bat flying around at night and say, that's a bat, not knowing that it could be a big brown bat or a red bat or a silver-haired bat or one of uh, any of a number of species. So, so we do have the nine different species that live here, six of which are considered full-time residents of our state, which just means that they're flying around in our night skies in the summertime, and during the wintertime, they've adapted to sticking around in our part of the world by hibernating. Where do the bats tend to live? What sort of environment do they like to stay in? Most people associate bats with caves, which is only partly true uh, with the hibernating species. But during the active months from spring through fall, uh, including right now, bats are active in our forests mainly, uh, mostly roosting by day in trees, either tucked up underneath loose bark of dead or dying trees. Some of them hang from the foliage and kind of blend in with the the dangling leaves. And yet others, uh, we've got one species of bat that actually roosts down on the ground in rock piles. Of course, most people's experience with bats have to do with ones that turn up in their homes, which does happen. There are a few different species of bats that have become very adaptable in the absence of a lot of natural habitats these days by forming colonies in artificial roosts like attics. Ah, that's very interesting. Now, bats have kind of a scary reputation around this, particularly around this time of year with Halloween. You know, you often see them depicted as turning into vampires or just kind of scary. But in fact, bats really play an important role here in New Jersey in terms of keeping our ecology in balance, don't they? Absolutely. Yes, they do. Bats are one of the most important animals to people, really, globally. And in our part of the world, bats are really the primary consumer of night-flying insects. So bats in New Jersey and most of the United States and really most of the world eat insects and only insects, and a huge variety of them at that. So the bats that we see flying around our neighborhoods are eating moths, beetles, mosquitoes, 
stink bugs, uh, lots of other insect pests and representatives of the diversity of insect life in our skies. One of the places I found to watch bats is actually on my front porch. There's a street light right across the street. And in the summertime, we can see the bats swooping in and out of the light because so many of the insects are attracted there. And my kids, particularly when they were younger, really enjoyed seeing those bats. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people aren't that observant. So I'm glad that you have noticed that and, and keyed your kids into it because bats really are all around us even though most people don't notice them. And by nature, a happy bat is living in the dark and almost all of its life is spent under the cover of darkness in places where people and other potential predators aren't going to be able to see or find them. So uh, that lends itself well to bats staying, staying safe from predators, but it also doesn't serve them that great in terms of public perception because people are generally a little more fearful of the things that we don't understand that well. We've heard the saying that uh, someone might be as blind as a bat. Are bats really blind? Uh, how do they get around in the dark? That's a great question. And no, bats are not blind. Uh, most of them actually have quite good eyesight, just about as good as ours, although most bats see in black and white. But they do rely uh, almost entirely on an entirely different form of navigation during the nighttime, and that's echolocation. So bats that we might see or mainly might not see flying around in our night skies, they are not relying on vision, but they're relying on sound to find their way around, to avoid branches and other obstacles, and to hone in on their insect prey. And basically what echolocation is, is that as the bats fly, they're constantly giving off these really high-frequency pulses of sound that bounce off objects around them and come back to their ears as echoes and give them a really clear picture of the environment around them and whether something needs to be swerved to be avoided or might look like about the size and, and shape and trajectory of something they might want to try to get in their mouths. So that explains why their ears are bigger than one would expect on what's a relatively small creature. Sure thing. Yeah, yeah. they can pick up those signals coming yep. back. Their hearing is one of their most important senses. So tell us some of the other environmental benefits of bats in addition to helping keep the insect population in check. What else do they do for our environment? Yeah, well, just to go back to insects for a little bit, there was actually a study that was done just a few years back to try to quantify that benefit of bats to human economies, you know, not just the natural ecosystem, but uh, but their value to us. And just looking at agriculture, the study calculated that bats are probably worth about $20 billion per year just to U.S. agriculture. Wow. And that's in terms of them consuming virulent crop pests. Some of the most serious crop pests to our crops are eaten readily by bats, including, you know, we're just coming off of the summer Jersey Fresh season. And if you're like me, you can't get enough of that Jersey Fresh sweet corn. And of course, what you do is when you're picking your sweet corn, you always peel down the tip and you look for those nasty little wormies at the tip. Those are corn earworms. And their moth form, their adult form, are gobbled up by big brown bats in particular. So if you're a farmer, you want to see bats flying around your crop fields because that means that, you know, you're going to have a more marketable crop. Uh, you're not going to need to spend as much money on pesticides. And uh, that equates to a lot of cost savings. Sure. And that keeps the pesticides out of the environment as well. We need to use less of it. Yes. Yeah. 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 So it can be a really bad, you know, negative feedback loop if bats start to disappear. Some people actually install, I understand, bat houses. Is that something that uh, is a good idea for folks to do in their yards? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely encourage bat houses to be installed these days, and I'm sure we'll get to some of the threats to bats more recently. These days, there aren't quite as many bats as there used to be, you know, flying around our neighborhoods, but certainly, so even if it's just a symbolic gesture, having a bat house up gets a conversation 
going maybe amongst your friends and your neighbors about why bats are important and why you're doing something to try to benefit them. And then you never know when all of a sudden there's going to be a colony in need of a place to live. And we've learned that in New Jersey alone, there are probably a few hundred colonies that are displaced every year by exclusion. And these are cases where people end up with colonies of bats living in their attic, don't necessarily want them there, have a professional company come in and and do what's called an exclusion or eviction. And then all of a sudden you've got a colony of bats that have lost their home. So those are the cases when bat houses can be especially important. How large is the average colony in New Jersey? These days with big brown bats are our, our most common now colonial bat. And average colony sizes are anywhere from, you know, maybe 25 up through 250 or so. And do all bats live in colonies or do some live uh, in smaller groups or even individually? Oh, that's great. So, yeah, not all bats roost in colonies. Uh, Male bats tend to be pretty much solitary or maybe form small bachelor colonies. But it's mainly the females that get together every spring when they're pregnant. The males aren't part of those colonies at all. They're basically useless to what comes next. But the the females form these maternity colonies where they will gestate, give birth, and raise their young throughout the course of the summer. And the reason that they group up into colonies is because they're making use of basically types of roosts that aren't as abundant across the landscape. So they will willingly share with each other. Do we have bats in every part of the state? We do, absolutely. And are the species, the nine species that uh, live here in New Jersey, are they generally spread throughout the state or do some species live in particular parts of the state and others in other parts of the state? Yeah, most of them are spread fairly evenly, although the smaller cave hibernating bats will often hibernate in underground caves and abandoned mines that are most common in northern New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So their summer ranges tend to be a little denser up there too, but they will absolutely spread throughout the state and even, you know, cross New Jersey's borders into surrounding states. The Indiana bat is one of our rarest bat species. And as far as we've ever known, that species is limited to northern New Jersey. And then we've got a small-footed bat that roosts down in rocks. Rocky, outcroppy types of habitats are much more common in the north as well. You mentioned that our bat population here in New Jersey has decreased. What are some of the major threats uh, to the bats that have contributed to this decrease in population? Well, for decades, the loss, gradual loss of habitat has been a threat to bats, as well as a number of our other wildlife species. So they're, they fall into that similar category as they lose their, their tree roots to development and some of their hibernation spots to collapses and development and, and things like that. Their, their numbers have tended downwards. Human persecution has long been a threat to bats. You know, just the simple fact that a lot of people who end up with bats in their living space or even in an attic don't necessarily know how to handle those situations the right way. That has resulted in a lot of bats losing habitat or even losing their lives directly. And more recently, some pretty big things have come to play. And the one that most people are familiar with is white-nose syndrome. Tell us a little bit about this white-nose syndrome. It's only been around for about a decade, as I understand, and but it's really taking quite a toll on the bat population here in New Jersey and in other parts of the country. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So white nose first arrived in New York State. It was a completely novel thing in 2006. And basically what ended up happening was that a whole cave worth of bats, for the most part, ended up dead on the ground in a matter of, you know, a couple of months during their winter hibernation. And in successive years to that, researchers and, and biologists realized that this was 
spreading like a pathogen. So gradually this syndrome has made its way from that first location in New York State throughout the eastern United States and uh, parts of southern Canada as well. So the fungus that causes white-nose syndrome has been traced back to several parts of Europe and Asia, where it was probably carried to the United States by either a caver or an explorer or, you know, someone who had the spores in their treads or on climbing ropes or, or something like that. And the bats here obviously didn't evolve with it. They don't have any natural resistance to it. And during that time of year when bats are hibernating, they are incredibly vulnerable to outside forces. So their bodies are basically shut down in the state of torpor. Their heart rates are very low. Their immune systems are all but shut down. And so this non-native fungus has had a chance to kind of encroach into their wing tissues and do a lot of bodily harm during that time, basically causes them to burn through their energy stores and dehydrate, and it causes erosions and wing deteriorations that prevent them from flying. So not a good thing for the bats at all. And with some species, it's killed about 98% of them, including in New Jersey. Wow. So is research going on to try and prevent the further spread of this disease among the bat population? Yeah, it has. And to the Fish and Wildlife Service's credit and other states who have active spelunking communities and cave exploration, they've done a lot of cave shutdowns and moratoriums on basically going into the underground where bats are known to be hibernating just to protect them from that spread as as well as from the disturbance of people being underground with them. And so, you know, the spread has been pretty limited, it appears, to just what can be explained by bats intermingling with themselves during the during the fall months and then hopping into other caves along, you know, the Appalachian mountain range and, and so forth. But then just this past winter, white nose syndrome turned up in uh, in one bat in Washington state, which is a massive jump for the disease and probably cannot be explained by a single bat migrating there or being in contact with another bat that could have made that divide, bridged that divide. So it does look like it was possibly the first case of humans transporting it a little bit farther than it would have been uh, otherwise. Yeah, so that, that was that was really sad to hear. That would be a huge concern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. What do we do here at DEP to uh, better understand the bat population in New Jersey and to uh, try and ensure that we're doing everything we can as human beings to make sure that bats remain an important part of our environment? For a number of years, the pro our Endangered and Non-Game Species Program has been you know, really trying to learn about where bats exist now and in what numbers, and this was even before white-nose syndrome for decades, really. One of the most important parts of their life history, uh, like we've already alluded to, is that hibernation, because they're so vul vulnerable during that time, and the spaces where they can successfully hibernate are so limited across the landscape that being able to identify them and protect them through land preservation or gating them against human entry during the winter months when bats can be disturbed and woken up too frequently, which can just cause them to burn through too much energy and essentially die before they reach spring. So being able to protect cave and mine hibernacula has been really important, as well as learning where they summer. So knowing where, especially those rare populations like the Indiana bat and now a number of others that have become extremely rare since white-nose syndrome, knowing where those bats are still successful or trying to be successful is really important to being able to safeguard those 
those places. And then, you know, certainly we've also been working to address the human elements, too, and making sure that people are educated about bats and excited about bats and understand what to do if they happen to have you know, less than desirable encounters with those bats, like the ones that might end up uh, surprising you at night by flying around your house or moving in and occupying your attic space or some someplace else where you might not expect them or want them to be. Is rabies a big problem with the bats? People seem to have a fear of that, and I wonder if that's overstated. Yeah, rabies is not a big problem, but it is a big problem <laughs> because uh, I say it's not a big problem because it isn't that common. Probably about 1% or less of our wild bat population will ever contract the rabies virus, but it does certainly occur in those those low numbers. And so it is not something that any of our, you know, either the state health department or local health departments, or us for that matter, are willing to gamble with. So in cases where someone does have a bat flying around or not flying around, especially inside their home, and they're not sure how long it's been there or if it might have been in a bedroom, those bats will pretty much always be submitted for rabies testing. You know, just the possibility of a bat being rabid is enough to instill that manic level of fear in most people. But yes, it is overstated. But overall, really, if, if people see bats out in the outside when they're out, they, people really have nothing to fear from bats. No, <laughs> yeah. And, and that one about, you know, bats flying into your hair and getting stuck and making nests in there and stuff is just, uh, it's pretty preposterous. I've been in plenty of situations with hundreds of bats circulating in the air, you know, in an enclosed space right around me, and they are very good at navigating by echolocation that we talked about earlier. They don't make mistakes, and they don't want to land on you, and, you know, to them, we look like big, scary, predacious monsters, so, you know, their main goal is going to be to prevent any kind of possible altercation with us. So you've never had a bat tangle in your hair? I have not ever had that. And just to clarify, Mackenzie does not have a crew cut, so uh, she actually has long hair. So if they were going to tangle in hair, they would have tangled in Mackenzie's hair. As I mentioned in our introduction, the week of October 24th through the 31st is Bat Week. Mackenzie, tell us a little bit about Bat Week. Yeah, so Bat Week's been going on for a few years, and it's really part of the national effort to get people excited and educated about bats, especially in light of all the things that have been challenging them lately. So this year's Bat Week has a theme called Pulling for Bats, and what that basically refers to is the removal of invasive species to benefit bats, and invasive plant species in particular, as most of us probably know, are one of the world's uh, most pressing threats to biodiversity and including bats through, you know, upsetting the balance of plants and insects and and so forth. So pulling for bats is the theme of Bat Week this year. People can go to batweek.org. So during Bat Week, which is October 24th through 31st, from Tuesday through Friday each day at 11 a.m., they're going to air a 15-minute video by a group of kids called the Bat Squad. And the Bat Squad is really aimed at middle school-aged kids and can be shown in schools or with your families as a cool way of learning from other children that are themselves learning about bats. And that'll be on that website. That'll be right on the website, yeah. And if you're a teacher, you can stream it right through there. You could even reach out to the organizers who will give you some special tools to help enforce the lessons. And, and then we, have a, we have a link to that website on the description of the podcast, so folks can click right there and get to the Bat Week website. 
Excellent. And then through that same website, there are also a list of events that are happening in your area. New Jersey has one on the list through Rutgers University. Their student chapter of the Wildlife Society is holding a Bat House Building Day on Halloween from 9 o'clock to 4 p.m. And their goal is to build about 100 bat houses for their conservation program. And most of those bat houses will be given out to homeowners that are having bat conflicts. And I've done a lot of work with this program, too, where a homeowner, like we've talked about before, if they're excluding a colony of bats from an attic space or somewhere else in their home, all of a sudden these bats are going to need a place to go. By giving out free bat houses to those homeowners, they can, in essence, keep their bats around for all the, you know, nice backyard bug control benefits mm-hmm. that, that bats bring, but without having them inside the home. And so it's uh, kind of a win-win for, for all. And then, uh, you know, you can just use Bat Week in your household or in your school as a great way to learn more about bats. And a couple other resources that people can go to that are New Jersey-specific are the Conserve Wildlife Foundation of New Jersey Bat Project page. They've got lots of great resources for homeowners and and folks who just want to learn more about bats. And then last year, around Halloween time, a New Jersey filmmaker named Jared Flesher came out with a bat episode in his Creature Show. And so if you go to the Creature Show online, you can find the bat episode. And I'm also featured in that. So that's a little bit of a shameless plug. But uh, it was a really fun little video that takes you through a lot of the work that we do to conserve bats, including mist netting and radio telemetry and visiting attics and things like that. So you're a star of screen as well as podcast now. A little bit. You could say that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) If people come across a bat colony when they're out and about or, or see one somewhere, is it helpful for them to let us here at DEP know where that colony is? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we, uh, we're we very interested in knowing where colonies still are. We do have a, a very healthy big brown bat population, and I think I said earlier that those are going to be the most commonly encountered anymore since white-nose syndrome. But, you know, you never know when we're going to encounter one of the rarer colonies of smaller bats, and, and we do a lot of research that requires us knowing where those animals are. So reporting those directly to our program, the Endangered and Non-Game Species Program, would be a huge help. We have a link to that as well on our description, so if people do have that information to report, they'll find the link right here on the description of the podcast. Fantastic. Thanks, Bob. How did you get interested and involved in bats? Interested in and involved in? That's a good question. So I think the earliest experience that I have with bats is probably really similar to anybody else's earliest experience with a bat, which was, you know, waking up in the middle of the night to my mother screaming and my dad swatting around at something with a broom and uh, and just being very confused by that experience. And, and I, you know, honestly didn't know much more about bats other than, you know, that that happened pretty regular to, regularly to people until I became a biologist and started working in conservation. And honestly, it wasn't until white nose syndrome had just crept up that I became, you know, active part of the bat project uh, by necessity, if nothing else. And so there was a lot of learning on the job. But, you know, I've always just been one of those people that really relates to the more maligned animals. You know, I've worked with rattlesnakes and 
bobcats and slimy little salamanders and the things that people don't naturally gravitate toward. I have I have a special place in my heart for those critters. Well, I'm sure the bats in New Jersey are glad that you do because uh, you and your colleagues have been doing a lot of really good work to protect our population here and, and try and reverse the decline and, and hope that they thrive. This has been a really interesting discussion. I, I will commit uh, right here and now that any kids that come to my house on Halloween trick-or-treating dressed as a bat will get two Hershey bars instead of just one. <laughs> to uh, emphasize how important bats are in our environment, uh, how they really are uh, a partner with us in, in, in a very real sense in terms of controlling the insect population and, and uh, helping our farmers, and just to help keep our ecology in balance, which is a really important thing for all of us to be mindful of. So, Mackenzie, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be with us today and sharing with us uh, some of the information you have about bats in New Jersey. My pleasure, Bob. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Discover DEP. If you have comments on the podcast or ideas for future podcast topics, please email us at podcast at dep.nj.gov. Enjoy the rest of your day.